0: There's lots of room in the front row, and nobody ever takes it. What's up? <laughs> if you're new to New Hope, welcome. Really glad that you're here. And uh, if you're watching on live stream or on YouTube, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you're a part of the worship this morning. A couple of things I want to let you know about before we jump into our, our Roman study this morning. Um, if you haven't been here in the last couple weeks, and maybe you didn't receive one of the mailers, you wouldn't know that New Hope is going to four services in two weeks, all right? So um, four weeks or two weeks from now, there'll be a service at 8.15 in the morning, and 9.45 in the morning, and 11.30 in the morning. And then Saturday night stays the same. It's still at 6 o'clock. And so the reason we're doing that <clears throat> is to make more space for people who are not here yet, people that keep coming to the church every week, and God's just blessing and expanding. So when you hear that there's an 11.30 service... That might be making you think, wow, that would be great. I'd love to go to that service. I'd like to encourage you to think about maybe doing the 815 service, right? Okay. I know. You're thinking, wow, that's really early. Just remember, Jesus went to the cross for you, right? Okay. No guilt intended. (laughs) Okay. So here's the deal. We, we've got to make more space, and so many people have come to me in the last couple of weeks and have said, wow, that 945, that's really going to work good for my family. Well, that's great. I'm glad that that's true, but we're pretty sure that both the 10 o'clock, the 945, and the 1130 are going to be jammed like this is right now. So if possible in your schedule, and you can do the 815, that would be great. Now here's a thought. Maybe you could attend the 8:15 and actually work in one of the service ministries during the 9:45 or the 11:30, because Debbie let us know that she needs about 50 workers to pull off the extra service. And it doesn't mean that she needs 50 workers every single weekend. The way that it works is that it's spread out over a month. So if there's eight to 10 who can pick up that extra service, then there's eight to 10 more who can pick up the, the following week. So if it's possible for you to be in that rotation. You may be thinking right now, I'm not a teacher, Mark. Well, you could probably do security. You could probably do computer registration. You might be able to be a hall monitor, or maybe you could be an assistant in a classroom. There's a lot of ways to consider it. Ray also put together this little pamphlet. It's in the back of the auditorium. You can get it later today. And it simply says serving opportunities on the top of it. Pick one of those up, and you can find ways that you can plug in here at the church. And here's the last thing before we jump into Romans. Um, On Wednesday... September 13th, I'm going to begin teaching this session. It's called Experiencing God. So Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, and based on how many books have already gone out the door this weekend, I'm not sure how much room we'll have left, but we're going to do it here in the auditorium. When I was 32 years old, I went through this study for the first time, and it radically changed the trajectory of my life. Because if you're in your 30s, you're in your 20s right now, you're probably thinking, what is God's will for my life? And that's where I was at when I was 32. God, what do you want me to do? How do I know what your will is? Well, this is called experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God. And it's based on the life of Moses. Now, you don't have to be in your 20s or 30s to wonder about the will of God. You're in your 70s, 80s, 90s. I don't care. You might want to be part of this study. So consider this. The book is in the back of the auditorium. You can get it for $10 after the service. And if you can't afford the book... We want you to still come to the study. Get one of the books. We don't want that to be a hindrance for you. So Experiencing God, September 13th, Wednesday, I've been through it five times myself, taught it multiple times after that. I think you're going to find that it's really going to speak to you. So I'm going to ask you to go with me to the book of Romans now, if you have your Bible, and open it up to Romans chapter 8, if you didn't bring one with you. You're going to find them in the racks around you. If you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. Grab one when you leave today. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So Romans chapter 8, and I know you're thinking right now, wait, Mark, you said you were going to do a review of chapters 1 through 7. Well, I am. But Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. How can he say that? Well, it's all based on everything that he said in chapters 1 through 7. Now, if you're new to New Hope, you don't know that we've spent 43 weeks in the book of Romans so far, and we made it to the end of chapter 7. And it's taken us this long to get there because there is so much to it. And everything that Paul said is very, very hard for us to remember. So I committed to you last week that I would shrink 43 weeks down into 30 minutes And this week, I sat down to do that, and I made it to part 19, and I just laughed to myself and realized, what in the world did I tell them I would do this for? (laughs) I'm thinking, this is impossible. But what I've done is I've put together a summary for you to remind us of the things that we have studied and spent time on and you have invested in. Why did Paul write the way that he writes? Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel. How can he say that? Why would he need to say that? Was there somebody trying to shame him? He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for there's power in it. And it's the power of God for salvation. We understand that if we're thinking back in time, it's one of the most familiar verses. Even if you haven't been in church in a long time, maybe you grew up in church, you know that verse. It's one of the most familiar. And in it, Paul explains why he's so excited, why he writes Romans, why he says the things that he does, especially when you come to verse 17. Look closely in the screen or in your Bible if you have it open right now. For in it. In what, Paul? What's the it? In it is the gospel, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the key. That's the key to everything Paul wrote. The righteousness of God, God's standard is revealed. Paul essentially is placing it before us, this revealing, and he wants us to understand that God is showing something. You might remember all the way back to June of 2016 when I told you the word revealed in the Greek language is the word apocalypto. There's no Greek words in your notes this morning, and this is the only one you're going to see throughout this next 30 minutes. Apocalypto literally means to be pulling the lid off from something. This is very similar to the word apocalypse. When we think of apocalypse, we think of end times turmoil. Apocalypto literally means to look inside. What is God revealing? What is He disclosing? Or well, we're told here the righteousness of God is apocalypto, is revealed. That's the first time it's used in chapter 1. The second time it's used, you're going to see in just a moment. And Paul is very intentional about it. So the overall theme of Romans is God's righteousness and how that translates to you becoming righteous. How God sets the standard here for his righteousness and Paul says, here's where you come in at and how you can get to here to what God's standard is. If you're new to New Hope, I want to promise you we don't often do seven chapters in one setting, okay? And this is a very unique day. But it's going to go fast, and so I'm going to pray for us right now that God will allow us to comprehend. Will you do that with me? Father, we take on what could feel like a whirlwind, and the last thing we want is for someone's eyes to glaze over, especially when it comes to the reality of your word. You speak only truth, and you speak it in power. So, God, we ask through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, that you would be our guide and that you would help us to comprehend Focus us, Father. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. The great thing about the Bible is that God is incredibly clear that He never changes. No matter how much culture changes, God is always the same. He says, I'm the same yesterday, I am the same today, I am the same forever. Doesn't it assure you, say amen if you agree, that God never changes? So He doesn't change His mind. He doesn't say, yeah, today you're in with me, tomorrow, ah, uh, not so much. I don't feel like it. That's not God. There's no shadow of turning in Him. Scripture says this in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Regardless of culture changing, what He said 8,000 years ago is just as true and just as relevant today because He never changes. So the prophet Malachi Old Testament guy, he says this in chapter 3, he quotes God by saying, for I, the Lord, do not change. So in response to that reality, the Bible anticipates questions. It's normal for humans to have questions about God. Romans is a key example of that. Paul anticipates questions as he writes the book of Romans. I put a whole bunch of questions in your study notes this morning that are inside your bulletin. Questions people ask as they think about God. We're only going to take on three of them this morning, and here's a big one. How can I know for sure that Jesus is really God? Well, Romans answers that. Paul writes down the response to that question. He says this in verse 4 of chapter 1. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. If He cannot be declared, if He is not God, why be here at all this morning? Some of you are really good golfers. You could be out on the course this morning. Some of you love to fish or go to the beach or go shopping. You don't need to be here. If he's not God, why be here? So verse 4 says, he's declared the Son of God with power by something very specific, something not normal, something catastrophic happened. God the Son becoming Jesus the man dies? How is that possible? Paul says something not normal happened, and something in response to that even more abnormal happened. The most conclusive evidence of Jesus' position as God is the resurrection, and that is the essence of being a believer. If you can't believe that God the Son died and was resurrected again the third day, you got to go back to the basics. Why? Because God defeated death in that, and why is that so important? Because we understand the greatest power known to man is the power of death. It it causes us to walk in fear on this planet. Even the strongest among us, even the wealthiest among us, walk in fear of this thing. And so giant megaplex facilities are built to keep it away. We call them hospitals. Try and keep it at bay. We don't want it in our world, and it's a force, and mankind functions around it. And doctors use the fear of it to get us to eat the right things, right? And some of us drive reasonable speeds because we're afraid of it. Well, most of us do. We are afraid of it. Yet, to God, it is nothing and matters not whatsoever. So the most fearful experience known to man, to God, is a puny little thing. Scripture says this in Revelation chapter 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That means at the very end, God's gonna throw it away like a rag doll. It means nothing to him. Scripture also says this in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So if you're afraid of death this morning, God says, I got that. I dismantle that. It means nothing to me. How does he do that? Because, get your amens ready, he is the God of life. He's the God of life, not the God of death. So the resurrection is the action demonstrating that God dismantles death. So Scripture records this about Jesus. It says this in the book of Acts, Acts 13, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. See, it's the resurrection that authenticates him as Lord. So, Understanding this ultimate truth, it caused Paul to do things like, say, I am not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power. The gospel is that Jesus rose again. Romans anticipates questions like this. Okay, Mark, that's all good. If God can fix things, then why are things so messed up on this planet? Why are things the way they are? Well, hear this very clearly, the main problem in our planet is not North Korea, and it is not ISIS, and it is not healthcare, and it is not financial instability, and the main problem on our planet is not corruption in politics. Those are issues, but they are not the issue. The real problem is that every human who has ever been born is consumed with sin, and sin has consequences. So what we see in the world, what we watch in the news every day, these world events, all the social relationship problems, all the racial tension, those complications are byproducts of the rejection of God's ways because first and foremost, sin is against God. Does it mess us up on this planet? Absolutely. Does it destroy relationships? For sure. Has it hurt you? You know it. But first and foremost, sin is against God. And anytime we choose to sin against the God of the universe, anytime we choose to do something other than his ways, we sin. And as a result, and this is going to hurt some people because they don't like hearing about God's wrath. As a result, when we choose to sin, God has to take action. So Paul writes in Romans 1.18 this very specific information. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Do you notice that it says, is revealed? It doesn't say will be revealed. It says there's something going on right now, something that we should be able to see. I'll come back to that in just a moment. We find ourselves with a dilemma in 2017. And the dilemma is this, we've got something that's been handed down to us from our grandparents and from their grandparents before them. The, the dilemma is that there's been a conscious, systematic approach to undercut the truth of God. And the primary target of that undercutting is the Bible. And the outcome of that has made man the measuring rod of all things. So, man has made himself the measuring rod of all things instead of God's word. And that was a very clever tactic on the part of Satan. Satan, from the very first humans who walked this planet, posed a question to Adam and Eve. When he said this, did God really say? That question put man in the driver's seat. Satan allowed man to put himself in the position to judge whether or not what God said was really true. Did God really say? Can you trust what God actually said? It was very, very clever. And since then, man has questioned what God has said. And if history has proven anything, it is this. When God is removed, man loses the measure of himself. He no longer can gauge it properly and cannot find purpose and cannot find satisfaction. How else do you explain the reality of what you live with today? with so much information, so much technology. What you hold in your hands with a smartphone, can you imagine the information available to you? So much capacity, so much wealth, so much healthcare, and yet things are so contentious and destruction is so poignant. And it seems like we're on the brink of war. How else do you explain all this capacity? Does not the wrong seem disproportionate to the capacity which seems so great? What's going on here? How can I understand this? Why are things the way they are? Well, the reality is only the God who made man can ever satisfy man. But man continues to reject God. And so verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's an unmistakable statement right from the Bible that God's righteous wrath is real. And he says, I'm lifting the lid off. It's being revealed. You can look inside and I want you to see it so that you understand. How do I understand that? How do I understand that a God who is love, love, Love to the degree that he sent his own son to die for me? How do I understand that he has a wrath nature? Well, here's the problem. People misunderstand the wrath. We tend to put human definitions on it. It is not an emotional outburst. Hear this. God's attributes are perfectly in balance. So he is 100% love. Love. He is not 80% love and 20% wrath. He is 100% love, but He is 100% righteous wrath. And He is 100% mercy and 100% justice and 100% patience and 100% peace. See, if He's lacking in any of those areas, He's not God because He's complete. He's God. And so this wrath thing confuses us. I know why Paul wrote what he did. Because we cannot grasp how good God really is until we grasp how desperately lost man really is. So God is determined that you would understand the reality of what it means to be under his wrath. And the picture is profoundly ugly. When I was 12 years old, my mom slid a plate of beets in front of me. And she said, Mark, you're going to really like these. Okay, so she made her first mistake because she thought, because she liked them, I would like them, right? Well, my nose did not deceive me. The smell of beets were horrible to me, and the smell was just as bad as the taste, right? So I wanted to plug my nose and push the plate away because I didn't want anything to do with what she was presenting to me. However, my attempt to avoid them does not eliminate their existence, The biblical description of sin and the outcome of it is downright ugly. And you may attempt to plug your spiritual nose and push it away and pretend that it doesn't exist, but that doesn't make it any less real. It's there. So I have a simple analogy for you I don't know medicine. There's a lot of medicine people who attend New Hope, they know medicine. I don't know medicine. But what I do know about disease is that in order for a cure to be effective, a disease has to be identified. And that's exactly what's going on in the book of Romans. The Bible reveals it. It diagnoses it. It says there's a terminal issue here. So check out this definition on the screen. It's in your notes as well. Sin is any action or attitude contrary to the rule of God. So with the exception of Jesus Christ, every person who has ever been born, ever lived on this planet, has been condemned because of sin, because of Adam and Eve, because when they fell, they passed it on to all of humanity, and we all have it. It infests our world. For 1 John 1.18 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So because there is sin, there's wrath. And wrath is God's reaction to sin. So check the definition for wrath on the screen. Wrath is God being active. God is actively opposed to anything that's opposed to him. Now check yourself on this. If we accept that God is righteous and that everything he does is righteous, you must believe that his wrath is also righteous. It's not evil. So the reason verse 18 talks about this revealing, that his wrath is revealed, is very, very logical. Because mercy is meaningless, except in relation to justice. And he's a just God. So how could we say he's merciful, he's merciful, but he's not also just? It'd be meaningless. So we understand that any attempt to retain the concept of God is love, 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 and only love, and period, love without the wrath is absolutely illogical. If you didn't catch that, hear it this way. Jesus is necessary because there is a wrath of God. Apart from all humanity being under God's wrath, Jesus died for nothing. God so loved the world that he reveals what's going on. His active opposition to sin, he's actively opposed to it. So Romans anticipates questions. Okay, Mark, I get those first two parts. The Bible confirms that Jesus is God. It confirms that there is a wrath of God. What evidence is there? I want you to go with me back to verse 18 again, because this is all part of the key. For the wrath of God, it says, literally in those five words, it's His. That means it's unlike anything you and I know on this planet We have never experienced it, except if we have spiritual eyes, we can see it. What evidence is there of this mark? God is always righteous. We've just said that. He's always righteous, He never loses control. That means when you think of wrath, you can't think of a human who has become completely unhinged. God is not in heaven kicking the drywall. He's not sending the cat across the room or knocking over the trash cans. He's not slamming doors. That's an emotional outburst. That's a human attribute. That is not the God of the Bible. He does not rage. So Scripture says this in verse 18, this wrath of God, it is revealed. And more accurately, if you're reading it in the Greek language, it would say it is being revealed, meaning it's constant. There's something going on. It's visible to us. How do I know this? I'll give you three examples. The first time we ever see the wrath of God on this planet is recorded in history in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Satan shows up and begins talking to our great ancestors, Adam and Eve. Did God really say? They chose to believe Satan's words over God's words. And the wrath of God was poured out upon them because he said to them, in the moment that you disobey me, and take what you want instead of what I said, you will surely die. And they did. In that moment, they spiritually died, instantly separated from God, previously walking with God in the garden of the cool of the day, no longer from that moment forward. Relationship with God, gone. Physically died at the end of their life. They knew physical death and they knew spiritual death. So that's the first evidence of God's wrath being poured out. Death And we live with it every single day. And death is no respecter of love. It doesn't care. It rages against us because it's part of wrath. The second evidence of wrath is what God has done to creation. You must certainly look around this planet and wonder, why don't things work the way they're supposed to work? Why are there thorns and thistles? Why do I get flat tires? Why do things decay Because of Romans chapter 8, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And that him, by the way, is God. God subjected it in hopes that man out of desperation would turn their attention back to him, that we would say, why are things like this? Why is there so much tension here that man would turn back towards God? That's the second evidence of God's wrath. And here's the third one. And this one you live with every day. Man's hostility towards fellow man. Why are relationships broken the way they're broken? Well, it originates with being hostile towards God. Relationship to fellow man is wrong because relationship to God is wrong. So mankind treats mankind the way they do because they treat God the way they do. So God says, there's evidence. I'm revealing this. Death, decay, broken relationships, it's all pointing to destruction, and we're all caught up in it, every single one of us. And that's why Paul can write in verse 23 of chapter (laughs) 3, we've all sinned. We have all come short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to that high standard. Now, obviously, some of us are morally way better than others. But even the most moral person among us sitting in this auditorium this morning is far short of God's perfect righteousness. Now, I know this is not a news flash to you. I know that you live with this every single day. And deep down inside, even if you're not admitting it to even your best friend, deep down, every single one of us know there's a problem. Something is very wrong. And no matter how often we tell ourselves, we're good, I'm good. Look at that good thing I did. We cannot help but thinking, saying, and doing the wrong things. You guys think I've taken a long time to get through the book of Romans. Dr. Donald Barnhouse took his church through it. First Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia back in the 1950s. Actually, he started it in 1944. He finished it in 1960, right? And then God killed him. Not really, he died in 1960. But, but before he did, no, he, he did a complete, thorough, comprehensive job. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a book after doing the book of Romans. And he had this great observation after teaching his church for 16 years. Watch his quote on the screen. "'Man stands before God like a little boy "'who swears with tears "'that he has not been anywhere near the jam jar "'and who, with an air of outraged innocence, "'pleads the justice of his position.'" In total ignorance of the fact that a spoonful of the jam has fallen on his white shirt under his chin and is plainly visible to all but himself. That's us, right? God, I'm good. I'm a good guy. You should let me in. And God's looking at you with your white shirt with a big grape stain right here. No, you're not that good. You think you are. You think you measure up to my righteous standard. You don't understand it. And yet, many people believe everything's just going to work out in the end. Everything's just going to be okay because God is too good of a God to send someone to hell. He's a good, good God, and He's love, love, love. So He would never send someone to hell, well, other than the really bad people, and then they have a mental list of who the really bad people are, right? Like that guy that cut me off in traffic, he's definitely going to hell, right? We have our list, and we formulate our list, and we have come up with guidelines of who we think is going to make it in and who's not going to make it in. And most greatly misunderstand the righteousness of God. So here's where most people make a severe mistake. They think, I can make myself good with God. And here's the severe error. They underestimate the magnitude of the righteousness of a holy God. And you've heard me ask this question throughout the book of Romans. How good do you have to be to stand before a holy God? Do you have to be as good as Isaiah or Elijah or Paul? And all those guys fell on their face in horror that they were even in the presence of God? How good do you have to be to stand in the presence of the Holy God? So the secret hope is deep down inside that maybe God will judge by a lower standard than perfect truth. God is always perfect. His evaluations are always perfect. He sees everything you and I see in tiny little parts. So Scripture says this in Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from His sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes with him with whom we have to do. Pretty simple. It means every single sin ever committed comes before God with no detail missing. I played college baseball, and when I played baseball, my training coaches had what we called um, breath cleansing exercises after a really, really hard workout where they just kind of like kicked us in the can, um, they would do these cleansing breaths. You've just had a really, really, really hard workout. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do because there's bright light coming. On three, I want you to take a deep cleansing breath. So one, two, three, draw it in and let it out because it gets brighter. You've just heard the really dark stuff. The hard reality is, yep, We are sinners before God. Can I do anything about it? There's one thing, and it's the only thing that you can do. Allow the living God to transfer his righteousness to you. And if you accept it, you can absolutely be certain of being saved. Not only forgiven at this moment. Not only forgiven of your sins past, present, and all your future sins, but destined for eternity with God and only for one reason and one reason alone, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's the only way. It's called grace. Unless you misunderstand it, it is not merited, meaning you cannot deserve it, and it is not earned, meaning you can't do enough good things to get it. And this is so shocking to many people who think maybe they can tip the scales in their favor. But Scripture says this very clearly in Ephesians 2.9, grace is the gift of God, and it's not a result of works. Why? Because we would definitely boast in it. That's our human nature. Now, this might be new news to you, especially if you grew up in a tradition that has taught you and you have concluded that it is something you earn. Maybe if you just go to church enough times, maybe if you just say the right words, God's going to let you in one day, and you're thinking in your mind, if you just do enough good things, God might let you in. Hear this, get your amens ready. It is a gift. I'm glad we're all on the same page on that, because that's what God says. You can't earn it, you don't earn a gift. So hear this. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your tradition is. Salvation does not come by baptism. It doesn't come by confirmation. It doesn't come by communion. It doesn't come by church membership. It doesn't come by being kind or keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not by being morally upright or being generous with your money or being respectable in the community. God's grace only comes one way. When a person recognizes they're a sinner and they need a Savior and Jesus brings that, it all happens through Jesus. So let me synthesize this for you. taken 43 weeks and put it down into 25 minutes. Let me give you the last three here. God provides a righteousness not based on what I can do but based on what he has done already, once and for all, and it has absolutely nothing to do with religious activity whatsoever. To comprehend and to respond to this truth is to change your eternal destiny. Big statement, Mark! Absolutely is. And my prayer and my hope is that you will come to the exact same conclusion because this is absolutely radical. It is so contrary to our human way of thinking. The righteousness of God, his own righteousness, is transferable to you. And it has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with God's provision. And I've come to the conclusion this is perhaps humanity's greatest struggle. It's not North Korea, it's not ISIS, it's not finance. Humanity's most difficult task is to accept that God wants to give his righteousness as a gift because with every natural fiber of Mark Kring's being, I want to earn God's favor. And God says, you don't have to do that. So everything Paul writes throughout the entire book of Romans hinges on chapter 3, verse 22, when he says this, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. See, it belongs to all who believe. What, Mark? Everyone who believes in his capacity. According to verse 22, a person is saved through faith in Jesus, alone, apart from anything else. Jesus came to bring restoration according to verse 22. Look at those five words. For what, church? For all. For all who believe. So God says, New Hope, do you get it? After 43 weeks in this study, do you get it? It's available. It's right there for everyone. It is utterly unnecessary for anyone to suffer hell, No one has to eternally go through my wrath. There is a solution. And this is all true because of one reason, because God is greater than your sin. Man, that's good news because I'm guaranteeing you somebody watching online right now or somebody who walked in the door is thinking, "Mm, you don't know my past. I promise you that God does. And he says, I'm greater than that whatever you think that is, I'm greater than that. God is greater than your sin. So just as no one is good enough on their own, no one is so evil they can't be saved. Whether a murderer or a prostitute or a thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus himself. Praise God for the thief on the cross. Man, I'm glad God included that in the story. Gee whiz, in the last few seconds of his life, he confesses Jesus as his Savior, and Jesus says, you know what? You get to be the first one in heaven with me today. Based on your confession, let's go. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Everyone apart from Jesus is equally sinful. Everyone in Christ is equally righteous. Righteous. How good is our God? The most amazing event in all of history is that God the Son became Jesus the man and lived an absolutely perfect life. And yet he was crucified on a cross willingly. And he took that cross and he transformed it into a tool. Using it to die for our sins, for the sins of the world. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he waits for one day he's going to return. And if you believe, if you make him Lord, God says in response to your commitment to me and your exchange for your belief in what I've done for you, I will take away all of your sin. Past, present, future and you will come to live with me one day in eternity for all eternity are we talking amazing grace or what like wow somebody should write a song about that he saved a wretch like me i was blind now i'm seeing this jesus took the eternal wrath of god on the cross why so that I will not experience His final wrath." So here's the good news. The good news comes from Romans 5.8. It says this, "...but God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, much more, having now been justified." you in Jesus this morning? Are you in Jesus? You're justified. If you've been justified by His blood, you shall be saved from the wrath of God, the future wrath, because there's a present wrath. And He does this because He is not willing that even one person would perish. Let me show you on the screen. It doesn't matter how bad they are. Scripture says this in 2 Peter 3, because He is not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. So from the dawn of history, man has tried to figure out how do I make myself acceptable to God? Working constantly, trying to come up with solutions. It's true in Buddhism. It's true in Hinduism. It is true in Islam. Individuals in the East and in the West are trying to figure out how do I make myself acceptable? I want to be worthy of God. And we do this instinctively. Because we know we're not. We know we're not acceptable. You can actually walk out of here today knowing that you are seen by God as being righteous. How is that possible? To stand before God with his righteousness placed on you, transferred to you. Here's where you have to begin. Stay with me. This will take 60 seconds. Watch what Romans shows you. Begin by recognizing Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have it. We know it's there, and there's none of us that are innocent. And there is a consequence, Scripture says. Romans 8, 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And it's not just physical death. That's a reality, but it's spiritual death. And here's where you took your cleansing breath, because the bright light comes in. Romans 5, 8, but God, but God, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to pay the price for your sin. So Scripture says this, if you will, in response to that, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, Romans 10, 9, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's pretty clear, right? That's God being really evident Because scripture says this in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means salvation is available to every single person that you know. Whoever you're hanging out in the coffee shop with, whoever you're playing soccer with, that person that lives next door to you that never goes to church and you wonder what's going on with them and they're wondering, how do I get to know this God? God says it's available to everyone. What are you doing with it, church? Church? Are you telling people about this? Let them know no one has to go under the wrath of God. Therefore, Scripture says in Romans 5.1, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. God says, you're good with me because why? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through Jesus, our relationship with him has been restored. We can have peace with God. So Romans Eight, one. Paul says, therefore, based on everything you spent studying for 43 weeks, New Hope, based on everything I wrote in chapters 1 through 7, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. That means my standing with God is not based on my feelings. It's rather, it's based on who God says I am. So God says He's accepted you, God says He has justified you. God has given you significance because of Jesus. So if you hit a discouragement moment this afternoon, or you got a bad day tomorrow, or things aren't working the way you think they should, and you're wondering, does God really love me? Remind yourself on the basis of your faith, it's Jesus that delivered you, and he has saved you from the wrath of God. Scripture closes this way, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Doesn't that make you excited for Romans 8.1? Because God really, I mean, like, he teed this up for a home run. That he gave us all of chapters 1 through 7. I am excited to go into Romans 8 with you. I'm calling it the great 8. It's so good that you will leave every day jazzed about the reality of what you have in Jesus. God loves you. And if you haven't dealt with the reality of that issue this morning, I'm going to encourage you to do that. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to stand up in church. I'm going to ask you to do this. When you leave here today, if you've never dealt with this issue, on the back table, on the brown table in the very back, I wrote a response, and it simply says, next steps on it. It's an envelope. You can grab one of those on your way out. Take it with you and read through it yourself. What am I supposed to do with all this information? I'm going to pray for each one of us right now. I'm going to ask you to join me in that, that I can pray for you, that this stuff will resonate with you. Will you join me? Father, you have made truth incredibly clear. Jesus came for a specific purpose, and it's because we need you. And lest any one of us try and convince ourselves otherwise, your word has proven it differently. So Father, for those who believe, who are already walking with you, who are quite a ways down the trail, God, I pray that you would translate this into activity, that we would use it to remind others in a gracious, gentle way. You can help individuals understand how to have significance with you, and it comes through the relationship. But Father, I'm I'm convinced there's individuals who are here right now and watching online who do not have relationship with you. And they want to, and they don't know what to do with this. Father, I pray that you would come around them in in magnificent ways right now, comforting them with the power of the Holy Spirit and drawing them into relationship with you because this is all true. And you have confirmed it. God, we thank you for what you've offered. And we praise you In the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.